my interpretation of grit is anywhere between relentlessness, being immersed, driving hard, working hard. We have four simple values, values that really resonate with me. And the four values are bold, humble, immersed, and fast. Think about that for a second. It's kind of a beautiful four words that in some ways give you a, a nice definitional sense of grit, right? Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. All right, let's just get going. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. I'll do the same for you. I'm going to screw things up, so when I inevitably do, go ahead and fill in the blanks for me. Deal? Okay. Born in Denmark, got your bachelor's from Copenhagen, and an MBA from, oh my God, how am I going to pronounce this? University of Wit, 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 say it. Say it oh, my, that, see, that alone was worth the entire time. <laughs> no, I... I <laughs> I'm a, I'm an undergrad and grad from Copenhagen Business School. I have a bachelor and a master's from there in economics yeah. and administration. And as part of that, I was an exchange student with the Wits uh, Business School in South Africa for a year, part of my master's. So that's how that's, but I don't have an MBA. Got it. That makes sense. I'm off to a hot start. So then you went on to uh, Olivetti. I'm going to ruin all of these pronunciations. Olivetti as an account manager for three years. You went to Dell. I think I can handle that one as a sales director for about five years. Then you went to Naspers, where you're the worldwide VP of internet services, mobile internet services for about a year and a half. Then Enablist for seven years, working as the non-executive director for South African and East African entities for about two years. Then the non-executive director on the global board of directors for about five. Microsoft for 14, director for three of them, regional director for the Middle East and Africa for two regional GM for three, worldwide GM of distribution for one, worldwide VP for SMB for about five years. Then Dropbox, you were the global VP of revenue, owned the number, this was in 2015, for about two years. You're an advisor at Insightly around that same time. Then you went to Carbon Black. So you spent two and a half years at Carbon Black, first as the CRO and EVP, and you did that for a year and a half. Then the COO, you were the COO for about a year, which subsequently got acquired by VMware. You spent about seven months in basically ostensibly running Carbon Black within VMware or running all customer operations for Carbon Black within VMware. Yep. Then you went on to your next move. You kind of took on an advisor role at Outreach and you're on the board of directors for a company called Forder. And as of about a year ago, you became the chief revenue officer of UiPath. I think the question is not what did I screw up, but how much did I screw up? Quite a bit. You did a good job, man. No, you, <laughs> jokes aside, you did, did a good job. I kind of early on in my career knew I wanted to be in sales. And I got my first sales gig selling newspaper subscriptions to the equivalent of Wall Street Journal when I was 19 years old. So I did that Monday through Thursday. This is back in the, gosh, early 90s. And I was one of those annoying people that would call you around about dinner time and wanted to sell your newspaper subscription on the phone. I had a lot of fun with that. It taught me the base of sales, which is the harder you try, the luckier you get. 
in Denmark, right? Denmark, yeah. And the last year of my undergrad, I also started working full-time for Olivetti. Olivetti was an Italian hardware company making PCs, printers, servers, the likes. They weren't really known for the quality of their product, but my goodness, A, they looked great, and B, they had awesome food in their canteens. <laughs> it was with Olivetti, I got the first to go and uh, spend a year and a half in South Africa. After that, I returned to Denmark to do my master's. As I started doing my master's in Denmark full-time, I also started working full-time for Dell as employee number five in Denmark, so very early days at Dell. Did that for a year, then I got a scholarship so I could be an exchange student and finish my master in South Africa. I joined Dell in South Africa, I think as number eight employee or something like that in Africa. So again, you know, early Dell days, super sales environment, wicked fun, and progressed in, in Olivetti from being a seller to a sales manager to a sales director. And had a wonderful 19 quarters in uh, Dell. And here's what I learned in Dell. Your life expectancy in sales is determined by, have you delivered your quarter? You print the license to survive another quarter by delivering this quarter. Now, Dell, candidly, at least in those days, perhaps were a little bit hardcore. They're probably different today, or perhaps they're not, I, I don't know. But um, I told me some good lessons around, you gotta deliver. You got to have accountability. You got to drive, and you got to do it in a consistent, predictable manner. So there's no surprises, right? And if there are any surprises, only positive surprises. So, lots of good life lessons along the ways in terms of sales, sales leadership, and, and go-to-market leadership. So you have this crazy run. I've watched a bunch of your videos and some of the articles that you've given around like channel and channel leadership. In your time at Microsoft, you built an incredible organization there. All of this culminating in you recently being named, you're going to hate me sharing this, one of the top 100 sales leaders of 2021. Taking it back a little bit, tell me about a windsurfing company that you may or may not have been involved in. Yeah, you know, when I grew up in Denmark, I did almost any sport you can imagine, I did it. I, my, my parents were very supportive and encouraging me to do lots of diverse stuff. I did 10-pin bowling. Did I mention that, that I was the Danish junior champion 10-pin bowling? But there was only two of us playing, right? Anyway. Is there uh, a distinction between 10-pin bowling and another type of bowling? You know, that's a good question. That I'll leave to the experts. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I did ballroom dancing. I did shooting. Not animals, like at targets inside. Yep. I did badminton, squash, tennis. Basketball, terrible. That's despite the fact that I'm 6'5", or at least I'm going to claim I'm 6'5", or 195 in meters, but you can't really see on a Zoom call, right? So, <laughs> But I did a lot of sport. But when I was 14, I'd been watching this on TV this amazing sport coming out of Maui, Hawaii, called sailboarding or windsurfing. Uh, this is back in 84, when I was 14. And I saved up money by delivering newspapers as a 13, 14-year-old, so I could afford to buy my own windsurfer. So I went and learned it, and it became my passion, not just for an afternoon or that, you know, summer, but till this day. It's the passion in my life, really. Whenever I get a chance to be in the water, ideally on the Hawaiian Islands, it's what I do. But anyway, when I was uh, 17, 18, I was very fortunate to be part of managing a, a windsurfing business, and you know, had fun with that. I was also an instructor and 
any hour I could spend, it was windsurfing related. I didn't necessarily spend it on doing my math and, or French homework. Yes, I love that. So fun fact, I was in Maui for part of January. And the time that I was there, Jaws, which is a famous surf break that I'm sure you're familiar with, yep. saw the biggest swell that it's maybe ever seen. It was like 70, 80 feet. And it was so big that the surfers couldn't really surf it, but all the windsurfers were surfing it. And I've never seen anything like it. The windsurf was almost brushing against the wave. I mean, and you fall on a windsurf on a break that big. I I can't even imagine. It's crazy. I've never been in in a break of that nature that big. I've done a couple of big breaks. I've done Hukipa on Maui, which can yep. get big on big days. What's big on big days? On a big day, Hukipa gets uh, 30 feet. You're doing 30 feet ways on a windsurf? I have not done Hukipa at 30 feet. I want to be very clear on that. I've <laughs> done it uh, on a medium-sized day at less than half. I've done a couple of breaks actually in Europe that are a little bit bigger, uh, but not as intimidating as the Hawaiian breaks that are just pure roll pipeline. Just amazing. Your HR team is terrified right now. Okay, so I want to make sure we have time to get into a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about. I want to get into UiPath. I want to talk to you about communication and effective communication, what that means to you. And then I want to touch on the art and science of sales and go to market. And we can let that conversation veer as it may. Before I do, let me go ahead and read off some facts about UiPath here. Recently raised, like within the last couple of months, a $750 million Series F from both Alkion and Co2, valuing the company at $35 billion. Some amazing history. UiPath was founded in 2005, but didn't raise institutional capital until 2015. CNBC reported in December that the company had annual revenues of $360 million and over 6,300 customers. Sequoia's in there. Kleiner Perkins is in there. Is in there. It's named the fastest growing tech company and number two of all companies on the FT 2020 list, defined by revenue from 2015 to 2018. It did so by increasing its revenue by just under 38,000%. This is like, I I could go on and on with these superlatives. It's, It's ridiculous. In 2015, you had $410,000 in revenue. In 2018, you had 155 million of revenue. I mean, are you kidding me? Maybe you could just start with like, tell us about UiPath in a minute or less if possible. What does it do, et cetera? So UiPath, very straightforward. It's a piece of software. It is not a physical robot. Really what we do is we automate processes. So instead of you as a human being sitting and doing repetitive manual tasks, we build processes that automates it so you can go and focus your time, your effort with stuff that is higher value add unleashes your creativity and you have more fun. And as a consequence, drive bigger impact for your company. What's an example of a process? Very simple process, uh, order to cash in finance. So all that paperwork, all those different IT systems that needs to be connected, we can combine that all together with one robotic process. One of the things that struck me, Thomas, was like, as I think about you joining this company, They've won at every nook and cranny, twist and turn. Do you like get nervous when you join something that has literally risen to such amazing heights? I don't know. It's like if you're in a turnaround and you join a firm that's like not doing so well, well, there's only one way to go. In this sense, it's almost the opposite. How do you think about that? 
Oh, I think we're only at the beginning, at the very beginning. Listen, the term we are addressing, the total addressable market, is conservatively set at $60 billion. And we only just crossed half a billion. So we've got a long way to go to get to even close to the potential of what we can do. When you join a company like, or consider rather joining a company like this here, what do you do? The thing you start with first and foremost is, what is the tech like? Does the company have the best tech for their category? And have they a way of expanding into a broader category? And is there the right roadmap? And is there the right product and engineering talent and company leadership that is focused on the technology? I'm going to be very candid with you. I don't think most of the great tech companies, enterprise software companies, happens because there's great salespeople. They happen because there is great technology being delivered on an ongoing basis with real amazing innovation. And yes, then it gets surrounded by really good sales, really good go-to-market. So when I looked at UiPath and considering joining, that's what I focused on. Is the technology absolutely the leading in the market with the right roadmap and the right opportunity to expand into more categories? And that's what I saw from the outside. I went through 21 interviews to join half of them. I insisted on having myself set up so I could really make sure I didn't make a mistake. And now that I'm on the inside, I have had a couple of big surprises, but only positive ones. So I'm optimistic. This is just the beginning of the very beginning. So I agree with you. Most companies have great tech and then you figure out distribution of that tech. Most founders are technically oriented. Venture capitalists are typically investing in those technically oriented founders so that they can define product market fit with a good technology in a market. And then we can put the distribution engine around it, whether that's sales, marketing, et cetera. 21 interviews. I guess a couple of questions. One, how do you... I mean, maybe you're super technical and you know exactly the way that the tech works. If not, how do you evaluate the technology? How did you really understand how good this tech was? That's question number one. I'll pause there. Well, one of the things is, you know, when you've been around for a few years, like I have in enterprise software, you build a BS detector. So there's nothing like actually asking some of the folks from the engineering and product organization to sit down with you and do some detailed demos. It's amazing what will surface in a, in a real-time demo. So that's always a good litmus test. Another amazing thing is to speak to the sales team and the pre-sales team and, you know, connect with them and ask them, so what are the challenges? What are the reasons why you don't win? What are the things that are not currently in the product you'd like to see on the roadmap? And is it on the roadmap? And is it not on the roadmap? Go and read the Gartner and Forrester reports and go and read the customer comments submitted on the vendors. It's amazing what you can learn. And then, gosh, if you've been around for a while and you build good CIO relationships, call some of those CIOs and ask them, what do you think of vendor XYZ? What can you tell me? What do you like? What do you don't like? So even if you are not the strongest technically minded go-to-market person seller, you can learn a lot by taking those simple steps, in my honest opinion. I agree. Asking customers is an easy one. Okay, so in those interviews, tell me like some of the hardest questions that they asked you. And maybe hardest is in this context of questions you most admired, questions that made you realize how critically they were thinking about the role 
questions that made you realize the importance that they placed on this job, and maybe some of those questions that you took and now you reapply in order to ask those that you're hiring on the team? You know, I, I never thought there was a difficult question. I want to clarify something with you. I never viewed it as 21 interviews. I viewed it as 21 meetings. Yeah. If you want to use the word interview, it's a mutual both ways interview because I'm also, as a candidate, you're interviewing the company to decide whether or not you want to join. So I want to clarify that just for sake of clarity. Look, I think some of the more interesting questions that came up, one of my more favorite questions is the one Jeff Bezos of Amazon is using as a closer, which is something along the following. What's the one reason why you wouldn't join the company? That's always an interesting one to be asked, you know? So you can talk about it. That opens up a good dialogue. Other interesting question is testing people's pattern recognition. So how much from their past career they've learned and might wanna leverage in this new role without jumping to conclusions around cookie cutter solutions. That's another interesting area that you can get tripped up on. No, difficult questions, not really. It's just good discussions, not meeting people, getting to know them, getting to know the company and for them to get to know you. It's good conversations. Okay, that's fair. So let me give you another extrapolation that I made based on your background and you can correct me whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. For some reason, and you had mentioned you kept getting drawn back to sales, which is clear, but I also see you at different points in your career getting drawn away from sales. So what I mean by that is like at Carbon Black, your COO role took on marketing. You strike me as someone that enjoys having breadth rather than depth. How do you think about the balance of that? And do you keep coming back to sales or is it something that, I don't know, what's your relationship to that? Early on in my career, I had a really good piece of career advice from a gentleman by the name of Patrick DeSchmidt. He worked for Microsoft at that time. And what he said to me was, Thomas, as you think about your next role, don't put yourself in a corner and think about just this one role in that one country or that one state as the next role you want. If that's how you frame your future, your probability of getting really disappointed is pretty high. However, if you open your mind to think broader than the function you're in and the location you're in, that you're mobile as well, you may just find that instead of yourself looking at one role, you'll end up looking at a hundred other roles. And the probability of you, one, being successful in landing that next role at that next level is very high. And two, by you being open-minded to consider something else that will train this little thing called your brain and will help you to learn, grow, get exposure to different disciplines, functions, geographies. It trains your future ability to deal with change. So this notion of embracing much broader set of opportunities thinking broader, trying out diverse areas, I think it sets you up for success later on in your career. So for me, that's been a, a pretty defining kind of piece of advice that I had early on in my career that's helped me a great deal. I have now for the last, gosh, three companies been in CRO-ish type roles. The chief revenue officer role is if you ask 10 people of what it means, how it's defined, you'll get 14 different answers. You know, most companies define it pretty differently. Yeah. My interpretation of it in the companies I've been in, it's been largely interpreted as including pre-sales, sales, partner channel sales, customer success, 
professional services, consulting, product support, and a few other bits and pieces. I love the diversity of those disciplines, and I love how you play off the different resources, how they all work together in account team units, focused on making sure that customers get a fantastic experience. I do get drawn back in different ways to customers and to sales, if you like. And what draws me back is the ability to help companies really to have an impact on the companies with the solutions that you're representing. And in UiPath, it's, it's such a pleasure, specifically given that our path to, to value for the customers is so fast. It really makes it really a lot of fun to work with customers when they see the value. It's pretty obvious and they enjoy working with you. Fair enough. And I want to talk about like the diversity and geographies and stuff in a bit. Before we do, communication. So the reason I want to talk to you about this is that we know a bunch of mutual people and they say there's two consistent themes about Thomas. The first is that he is a very direct communicator. The second is that he thinks big, bigger than you would expect. Those are the two most consistent themes that people tell me about you whenever I ask. So let's start with the first, communication. You have a 2,000-person org. You started, I think, during COVID. You've met like one person, maybe your boss. Especially for you, you're used to traveling around the world. You're used to being in other places. Like It's so ingrained in you to communicate in different ways. What have you had to change to communicate differently right now? It's awesome to have joined you by a path. Look, it's not great to sit on 10, 15, 20 Zoom calls a day, right? I don't think any of us a year into it are now wishing forward to continue for another year or two. I think a lot of us are ready to find a little bit of a nuance in how we go about work. In terms of communication, first of all, I do believe you have to be very crisp and clear and to the point. Secondly, I do believe in the rule of repetition. As a matter of fact, I believe in the rule of seven. If you want to make sure a message truly, really lands, you have to repeat it seven times. And in that process, again, I'll revert to be crisp, be clear, be gone. One of the things I do with my global team, uh, I have a team that's spread across around about 30 countries all over the world and time zones. Of those 2,000 people that's in my org, I've met one person once. That's kind of interesting face to face. Yet I feel like I met so many of them already. But that's just because, you know, we all on calls together every day. What I've done as an effective communications tool is, as so many others are doing, is use video. I do a weekly video to the global team. I call it my three fast thoughts for the week. It's no more than four or five minutes every Friday. It's not rehearsed. It draws straight into the can. I seldom do more than one take. It's full of imperfections, me butchering names that I can't pronounce. What's your goal for that? The goal is... One, to connect with this global team, feel that they get an update on what's going on in the business, share news, good news of big wins, product news, and make sure that we share best practices on how to best drive customer satisfaction, and just to make sure we are aligned around strategic initiatives, launches, new approaches, you name it. What is Timmy the Robot, and is that what it is? Ah, so... Uh, one of the things I've done, so when I release the video every Friday, after having recorded it, normally I would go through a step of spending 40, 45 minutes on 
compressing the video, then uploading it to SharePoint and Highspot, then writing an announcement, getting it out on both Slack and email, and getting all of that done took like 40, 45 minutes. Well, lo and behold, the arrival of a robot from UiPath that I have uh, named Timmy. Don't ask me why. It's one of those things. <laughs> and what I do now, once I've recorded the video, I launch Timmy. Timmy runs away, does the job for me. And after the bot has been running for a few minutes, he will give me a prompt, say, hey, Thomas, are you ready to click approve to send the email and Slack? I look at the message, satisfy myself that it's the right message, click send, and it's all done. It takes me, all in all, 30 seconds of my working time as opposed to 40, 45 minutes. And at that time, hey, I do another Zoom call, or I might actually type up a few emails and send a few slacks, or kind of sneak away and get a coffee. What happens in, this, in the process of leveraging that automation technology? You spend less time on mundane tasks and can actually go and work on activities that are higher value adding and far more satisfying and non-repetitive. There is a book that's quite vogue right now, Radical Candor. And I wanted to just get your opinion on this because oftentimes the perceived downside of being very, very direct is that it's impersonal, right? People can mistake candor for impersonal, like you don't care about them. And Radical Candor talks about is that it's the ability to challenge directly and show that you care personally at the same time. Yeah. Radically candid feedback, both praise and criticism is rare because people don't wanna come off as insulting or harsh. I'm just really curious how you think about that. How do you balance that mix in your communication? Is it something that you're actively perceptive of or is it something that you've worked on over time? Where's your head at on that? I think there's a correlation between being direct, but at the same time being humble and kind and authentic. So there's no point in delivering direct feedback and destroying people in the process. And candidly, I have done that earlier in my career before I knew how to conduct myself in a better way and have higher levels of self-awareness. Honestly, I think we all go through a little bit of a journey, or at least I can speak only for myself. I had to go through a journey. And I've always maintained that I'm not a full box of chocolate. And that's probably one of the areas that was part of my journey, that I was direct and hard. Then I think I moved more into a phase of being authentic, direct, with a dash of, of being humble. And over the years, I think I've come to appreciate in the process, however harsh the situation may be, you have to be, of course, always professional, but you also have to be kind. As I said, in the process of going through difficult discussions, it doesn't serve anyone to destroy the person in the process. I do think, though, you do anyone a disjustice, whether it is the person you're talking to, yourself, your team, your colleagues, and the company a disjustice, if you don't confront difficult feedback, tough feedback early on. In most cases, with a very, very few set of expectations, I'll say the faster in the right way you can share feedback that may be tough, hard, the better. The earlier on you can deal with the issue and the earlier on you can move on in a, to a better place together or sometimes not together. And that's also okay. Why do you say that? Expand on that if you could. The reason you wouldn't want to share feedback early is because you don't have enough data 
to feel confident to know that your feedback is objectively correct? It's good you ask me to clarify. I think I, I would say is that a point where you have enough data. So it's not a data issue I'm talking about. It's more a question of do you think you can, through soft messaging, tweak the person into change? And I find that feedback that is not crisp, clear, direct, and not offered to the person in a way that he or she will clearly get it, if it's done too soft, it seldomly will change anything fundamentally. It seldomly yeah. will drive change. So then madness will occur, which is the same thing will repeat itself again and again. So my key point is once you have enough data, don't shy away from the difficult discussion. Have the difficult discussion in an authentic, humble, and kind way. And then it allows you to actually go and deal with the issue together. And sometimes that may lead to you not working together longer term, midterm. But that's also okay. At least you've helped the company, the individual, and your team and colleagues all to move on to a better place. As you qualify who's a good match for your team, you know, you hired functional leaders all over the world, a bunch of people that are reporting to you, a bunch of people in your organization. You set the tone of the culture on down where it is a very candid, straightforward communication style. Do you do anything to qualify in interviews or other that they're going to be good about receiving that feedback? Yeah. One of the biggest qualities I believe in anyone is can that individual receive feedback, not straight away object to it, but process it, consider options around what one can do about it, and then successfully do something about it. So one of the things I do on that specific dimension is I do reference calls. But I don't do reference calls on the names that the person that is interviewing to potentially join has provided me. I do it through my own network. I'm very fortunate. I have a very large network. And I find ways of getting to folks that I work with individuals and get their candid feedback. And that's normally a really, really good litmus test. And I tell you what, I mean, once you've done on a given candidate three or four reference calls, you will very fast know whether this is the right person. Can they take feedback? Can they process it? And can they go and do something about it successfully? That last piece not that many are necessarily so strong. Like a lot of people will object to feedback. Fine. That's like a no-go. If you can't just listen to feedback and take it away and process it and then say thank you for the feedback and then come back, that's an issue if you can't do that. But if you can actually also take that feedback, listen to it, process it, and then decide if it's something that matters, do something about it and show change, that's a big deal, right? And specifically for senior leaders. That can be tough for senior leaders, senior leaders that typically are more mid-late career. It can be tough for, for them to, to change. So I always find that impressive when I find those qualities in a senior leader. Are there any others out of curiosity in the reference check? What else would you ask those references? What qualities would you try and uncover that are really important to you? I will go in and talk to them a little bit about the role. I will go in and talk a little bit about the culture and values of the company I represent and ask for the person's 
bit vis-a-vis -vis that, I will probably in the interview process have uncovered one or two things that I'm thinking, not a red flags, but perhaps just small little question marks around the candidate. So I ask the folks that I call for the references around their perspective on those one or two things. That's where I will spend the majority. And then, by the way, <laughs> I will always end by asking, is there something else I should know we haven't spoken about? Because if you don't ask that question, you know, you don't open up for for some of the things that may be, you know, a little bit more dicey from a person's background and career. Fair. No, I think those are good. Okay. Let's talk about like art, science, sales, what that all means together. Maybe I could kick it off with one. I know the way that you believe the science of sales works. And I'm going to start off by giving you a different perspective, and then I'm going to let you launch right into it. So you were giving, it was an SKO. It was your SKO at Dropbox. Okay. And what you talked about was that 30% of the product roadmap came from a hack week. And that feels like an art, not a science. And I think a lot of the times people think of product and product development as a science. I guess my question is, can we do that in sales? How much is art versus science? Because I think a lot of people's perspectives that it's all science now, it's data enabled, outreach, gong, et cetera, et cetera. When you do all that, do you lose the hack week essence that can give the people the ability to have the autonomy to be creative and do the things that make them great in order to execute on their fullest potential, making their customers successful, et cetera? Does that launching point make sense? Totally. I don't believe in the limitations of all. I do believe in the purity and beauty of and. And I do believe that when you think about sales and go to market, you've got to look at both art and science whether we talk about sales or marketing or other go-to-market disciplines. You are right. Sales, you see more and more science. I'm a passionate customer of products like Gong, Artreach, Clary, and the likes. But I do think it does come back to, are you an effective communicator? Do you have the art, the skill in you of relating to people, of taking them on a journey? which can be science-enabled, but needs to be coupled together with the art of taking the customer, the individuals, at the prospects through the process of discovery, understanding, and delight of what you can bring to them. In terms of tools that can help us to this end here, you know, I, I think there's a lot of exciting tools that one can think of. One of the things I really like that we've done at UiPath Early on in the process of COVID, our visitor center, obviously, we had to shut it down. You couldn't physically bring people into face-to-face -face interactions. We took our executive briefing center, visitor center, into a virtual environment. We built a super cool approach where we're leveraging science to take our customers through a 3D-enabled experience. And leveraging, for example, 3D Oculus glasses to get an immersive experience of what it would have felt to have been otherwise in a visitor center. But coupled with a warm host that's taking good care of you and, of course, the seller involved in the process to keep it relevant to you as uh, the potential customer of your product. So I think they go hand in hand. It's not the one or the other. It's the two of them together, art and science. And I will say, 
if you're not careful, I mean, listen, to all you EDRs, SDRs, BDRs out there, I got to say, my gosh, I get 20 to 30 emails a day from EDR, SDR, BDR, wanting to get a meeting with me, sell me stuff. And it's pivoted too far to the science side that it is now ineffective. Ineffective in getting to me as a potential customer. It's literally almost audit deleted for me now. There's just no value in that interaction. So it's a fine balance all the time in terms of sales. How do you find the right balance between art and science? If you over pivot too much in the technology, I also think that is losing an effectiveness in the sales process, in the go-to-market process. What do you mean by it's like in the BDR example, they've overcorrected towards the science? Absolutely. It's become so formulaic driven, playbook driven. The vendors will tell you, here's how you should contact a potential customer. Here are the 10 kind of scripts. Here's what you say. Here's what you do. Well, when you get 20 or 30 of them a day, you start to see the same pattern, the same script, and it just becomes ineffective. And hence, you just don't respond to any of it. And then now and then there's the creative one that, that gets to you. So the other day I had one calling me and basically started the call along the lines of, hey, you get a lot of calls. I'm going to ask for 32 seconds, then pause. So I said, okay. You intrigued me 32 seconds. And I literally looked at my watch and uh, <laughs> I sort of probably ended up, truth be told, spending more time on counting down from 32 versus listening to the pitch. But it was effective. It worked. Okay, fair. There is a gentle balance. And I've had the CROs of Clary on the, on the show. I've had the CROs of Gong on the show. And I, I would agree that there is a balance and you do lose touch if you over-rely on it. Before you go there, can I just add, you know what? I still think, though, the interesting part is pre-COVID, there was still an over-reliance largely on art and not science. So actually, in my humble opinion, sales to a large extent, specifically for enterprise sales, so not inside sales, mid-market S&P, but more conventional enterprise field sales, was far still too much over-pivoting on art and not with the right mix of science. For example, data, leveraging data science, leveraging ABM, leveraging some of the tools we just mentioned and others. So I think it's actually a little bit nuanced. And I also think it depends on which company you're talking to. I mean, obviously your exposure is more to startups. And in the startup world that you live in, you see far higher level of those companies embracing science into that process. But we'll have a look at some of these well-established tech companies that may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. You will be surprised how still to this day they are over-leveraging art and not enough science in how they drive some of the sales processes. And when you say art, like taking the same customer that they've been working with for the last 10 years to the same steak restaurant, having the same type of meeting, is that what you mean by art? Uh, That would be one example. Sure, sure. Take the other side of the equation, which is how can you use data and data science to really truly understand you as an enterprise seller, where do you find the best product market fit and also product customer fit? As an enterprise seller, is there a part of the sales process that you think is the weakest around the ways that they apply science, i.e., 
top of funnel lead generation. You've mentioned that a couple of times. Maybe it's the POC process and executing against success criteria. Maybe it's prioritization and understanding who your target customers are. Maybe it's the closing process. Is there a specific area or phase of the customer journey or the sales journey that you could pinpoint to say, you know what, this is where a traditional enterprise sales rep is probably the weakest or probably doesn't apply science enough and relies too much on instinct and art? I think um, to me, it's early on in discovery, really leveraging propensity analysis to understand where's the fastest path to going and helping a prospect or a customer or which prospect or customer has the highest propensity to actually turn into a live opportunity for you. That is an area where data science has a massive opportunity to offer value. There's not necessarily perfect standardized solutions that you can buy out there. So you typically need to do a little bit of dev yourself in-house with a small data science team. And ironically, coming back to your point around product and engineering, that's typically where your product engineering team can actually help you in getting that built out. So it's funny how that partnership goes full circle, right? Yeah, absolutely. I want to take another hour, but I'm going to be respectful of time here. I want to wrap up with the same questions that I always do. The first being, what does the word grit mean to you? And how do you or your teams apply it? English is not my first language. It's Danish. My interpretation of grit is anywhere between relentlessness, being immersed, driving hard, working hard. There's so many different meanings to it. Look, here's the way I think about it in the context of UiPath. We have four simple values, values that really resonate with me. And it's one of the reasons why I came to UiPath a year ago. And the four values are bold, humble, immersed, and fast. Think about that for a second. It's kind of a beautiful four words that in some ways give you a, a nice definitional sense of grit, right? So I love being in UiPath. I've had a very lucky career. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. I won't talk about the bad and the ugly. I'm not allowed to. Otherwise, the lawyers will get after me. But <laughs> I count myself incredibly, incredibly lucky to be where I'm at today at UiPath. There's nothing better than being in a company in a sales or go-to-market function where you have the best product for your category. That makes it a ton of fun. So... Yeah, what I will say to all of you out there, if you're in a sales and go-to-market function, make sure that you're with a company that has the best product in its category. And for those of you out there that want to join UiPath, go to our website. We have 600 open roles. Prudent advice. Thomas, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. No, I like mine. the same to you. I really enjoyed it. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.